scripture reading today comes from the book of Esther, and I'll be reading chapter 2 in its entirety. It's written in portions if you have the bulletin, but allow me to read the entire passage of chapter 2 from verses 1 through 23 from the book of Esther. Later, when the anger of King Xerxes had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful girls into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the woman, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the girl who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Now, there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into the exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Joachim, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This girl, who was also known as Esther, was lovely in form and features, and Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many girls were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther was also taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. The girl pleased him and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with her beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven maids selected from the king's palace and moved her and her maids into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day, he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Before a girl's turn came to go in to King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem to the care of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless uh, was, he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. When the turn came for Esther, the girl Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihail, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. But Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do, for she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. 
During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were hanged on a gallows. All this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. And this is God's word. <clears throat> now, before we start, uh, I want to I basically um, share uh, something that I shared at the gathering last week. You know, this season uh, for me, uh, as we enter into the time of Thanksgiving and well, the whole season of Thanksgiving Christmas, you know, it's, it's hard for me to explain. I, I, I haven't really dwelt too much on where it begins or where, how it began, but every season around this time, uh, I fall into a kind of a, a bit of a sadness, uh, a little bit of a, I don't know if it's depression, it's definitely a kind of sadness. And um, it's, it's something that didn't, it happened, it started way long before Metro, um, probably since I was a child, and, and, and uh, has a, probably a lot to do with that. Um, but what I wanted to do, I, I noticed that when I speak with people, that a lot of people, especially during this time, are going through this, this kind of winter or seasonal blues. Now, again, whether it's severe or not, um, what I'm going to ask is, if you're interested in just praying with me for 30 minutes weekly, um, email me at donnie at metrophilly.org. I'm going to pass you a, um, a Zoom link. We can get on, and I'll share in the Word for five minutes every week, and we'll spend the bulk of the time. Just I just want to pray for you, and you can pray for me. And we're literally just going to get on, uh, see each other's faces, pray, and then, uh, and then we'll conclude the session. 30 minutes, no longer than 30. It might even be shorter in some cases. But um, what I'll do is um, I want to offer that to you. I do get together, uh, and I will start getting together again around this season regularly with some brothers uh, on a more private level. But um, if you are, uh, just to pray with me and for me um, and me for them, but I thought I'd offer it up to the entire church. So whether you are male or female, um, please consider joining. If you're going through, in this season of isolation, I just know it's difficult, uh, just email me at donnie at metrophilly.org. Please feel free to join. I'm gonna give you a moment right now. I'm just gonna pause and give you a moment to send me that email because you're going to forget otherwise. And this is probably the last time that I'll ask because I'm going to start this week. So uh, take a moment, uh, send me an email. I'm just going to probably put a time on the calendar, 30 minutes weekly, uh, to pray with you, for you, and you for me. And we'll get through this season together of, uh, you know, whether it's sadness or depression. Um, It could be just really, really tough feelings during this time of, of isolation especially during the winter season as we head into a really, really joyful time and a season of thanksgiving and giving and, and blessing to others. So let's, let's pray for that together. And for those of you who may not be able to relate or may not be a part of this, that's okay. Um, I just ask for your prayers uh, for those in our church who are just suffering, whether it's silently or whether they've been active and sharing about it, um, because it is a tough time. And if you haven't experienced anything like that, you probably wouldn't know, but it's a, it's a tough season overall right now. So please uh, consider just joining us in prayer. Um, and uh, again, Donnie at metrophilly.org. Take a moment right now uh, to just send that email. It could be very short. Just say, hey, I want in. And we can move on with the sermon. <coughs>
Now, <clears throat> we're approaching the start of the season in the Christian calendar known as Advent. And Advent means uh, arrival, and it represents a forward, or I guess a forward thinking if in the ancient times of an anticipation of the birth or the coming of the king in Christ, Jesus. But as Christians, now we look back, and as we remember the deep, great anticipation of the coming of Christ, we look ahead to the return of Christ. And that's why we observe this period. And so we're going to take a brief break from uh, our current series to look at the book of Esther. And among the things that the book of Esther teaches us, the primary thing is the presence of God, especially when he seems absent, not just personally, but in the world, in our culture and society, which is really fitting today when people are extremely isolated, we are completely separated from one another, we are alone. Because in this time, when we experience isolation and sin starts to creep in, we develop a short-term memory loss. We develop a, a, we forget about our need for the presence of God in our lives. So I wanna remind you, I wanna take this time uh, and we're gonna take an extended period into Christmas uh, of, uh, through, by looking at the book of Esther. Now, I wanna start with the background of this narrative because we're starting with chapter two. Esther chapter one begins with Xerxes. He's the king of Persia. Now, Persia is the most powerful empire in the world to date, and uh, he holds this giant feast, this incredible banquet, flaunting his wealth, flaunting his power, and in a very chauvinistic, misogynistic culture, uh, Xerxes boasts about how beautiful his wife is, and he wants to put her on display in front of thousands of drunk men, and surprise, surprise, she declines. So the most powerful man in the world is disgraced by a woman. Look at the fragility of his ego. And so he deposes Vashti, and he exiles her. And he decides, along with the help of many people in his court in chapter two, which is where we started, verses two to five, to hold this beauty pageant throughout the empire with the most beautiful young women from all over the world, all over the known part of the world, the empire, to find somebody new. Now, women are taken from everywhere, and each of them had to undergo makeovers, beauty treatments, essentially, uh, for a year to spend one night, each of them to spend one night with the king. And based on that night, either you become a part of the king's harem, which is really like a prison because you're banished, really, uh, in, in a sense, in the... In the in the empire, or you became a, a concubine, or you became one of several wives, but if you really found favor, if you really found the favor of the king, you became queen. Now, Esther is a Jewish orphan girl, really. She's young. She's part of a, a disfranchised minority in the empire. And she becomes queen. She rises to become queen of the most powerful country in the world. So the book is also dually about what it means to be a Christian with power, what it means to be a Christian with, with wealth and influence in a society that does not share any of our values. There are three things we're going to look at today. They're not sexy points, okay? One, uh, the underlying theme of the entire book. Two, the theme of the main, uh, the main theme of the passage. And then lastly, how can we apply both of them in our lives? How can we apply them in this strange time 
in our lives. The underlying theme, the main theme of the passage, and then how do you apply it, all right? First, we're gonna look at the underlying theme. The underlying theme of the book is the silent, kingly presence and authority of God. The silent, kingly presence and authority of God. The author writes in a very particular way, and I'm not sure if you've noticed, but there's no mention of God anywhere in the book. It's the only book in the Bible where God is not only not discussed, but there's no reference or mention of him at all. There are no miracles, there are no dreams, there's no teachings, there's no prophecies, there's no Bible study, there's no mention of God. It's almost as if God was intentionally taken out of the narrative because the author intentionally avoids mentioning God at all. So all you see, all you see from beginning towards the end is what? Daily struggle, social injustice, impoverished people who are exploited. And what emerges in this book is a group of powerful men, evil people seeking to destroy Esther's people, God's people. Yet God seems silent. There's not a word. God seems absent. And yet, by the time you get to the end of the book, through a string of suffering and coincidences, if they had not all happened, it would have led to Esther's ruin. It would have led led to the ruin of all of her people, God's people. But because all the suffering happened, and because of all those so-called coincidences, everyone gets saved. God's people saved. So the first lesson, this underlying theme, is God is present even when he seems silent. You got to remember that when you pray. You got to remember that when you're alone. You got to remember that when you're confused. Because this passage shows us that God is present, especially when you pray and when you're alone and when you're confused. Look at the theme of the book. If Xerxes didn't hold this party and make this boast about Vashti, Vashti would have remained queen. But salvation hinges on Esther becoming queen. If Vashti doesn't reject the king, there is no pageant. If Esther doesn't happen to be beautiful, she's not chosen for the pageant. If Mordecai doesn't overhear at the end of the chapter that plot to assassinate Xerxes, if Haggai is not impressed with Esther, if Xerxes doesn't show favor, if Xerxes doesn't like Esther, you see this? One thing after another. Things that are completely out of anyone's control. One thing after another amidst just ordinary suffering, impoverishment, uh, day-to-day exploitation, day-to-day happenings, mundane things going on. No one looks at bad things let alone the small things that are going on in our lives, and say, wow, that's God at work. No one ever does that, but it is God at work. God is doing 10,000 things right now for his glory, for your good. Do you believe that? That brings us to the second lesson. It's a part of the underlying theme. God works through broken situations and suffering. He is especially present in broken situations and cultures and suffering and the small things, the little things, the day-to-day mundane things that go on in our lives. Why is that important? Because there's somebody listening right now saying there's nothing good that can come from my situation right now. Nothing, can, nothing good can come from my current suffering or circumstances, and you're completely wrong. You could, nothing could be further from the truth. Look at Esther. Salvation comes through what? Polygamy, adultery, Injustice, racism, conspiracy, genocide. God is so wise. God is so powerful 
that even though he seems hidden, even though he seems absent and there's brokenness everywhere, he works through that brokenness. He works in the context of that brokenness, our broken situations, our broken suffering, our broken bodies. That's the pattern of his kingly authorities so that if you're in a broken place right now, you got to take heart. You got to take heart because God is all present in your life. God could be all present in your life. That's the underlying theme. God is present even when he seems silent and he's working through broken situations and, and uh, broken cultures, broken societies, broken bodies, the mundane everyday experiences of our lives. Now, the second thing, what's the main theme of this passage? The main theme is this. The world, and sadly oftentimes Christians in our world today, are obsessed with the externals, our looks, our wealth, our reputations, our titles, our power, moving up. So you have chapter one, you have the king, Xerxes. He represents the entire nation. He is in the midst of war, and yet in his denial that his own power is starting to slip away from him, he holds a grand party where he shows off all of his wealth so all of his livestock, he parades all of his livestock and his treasure. And he is so wealthy, he has so much, it takes 180 days to demonstrate and display all of his wealth before the country, before his court. And Vashti, the queen, is an irreligious woman. She is just disgusted by this. But look at chapter 2, verse 5. Esther, she's a religious woman. She grew up around people's faith in God. She completely buys into it. She's completely swept away by these values. In verse 8, she joins the king's harem. In verse 9, she begins these makeover treatments, and she shapes and changes her diet. Diet is very sacred in the Jewish culture, and yet she changes her diet instantly, and she works to please Haggai. Haggai is her boss, right? She pays her dues, essentially, to move up. She compromises her values to move up. And soon after, after she rises to the best position in her department, she is giving very special treatment. Eventually, in verse 12, she is completely swept away. Now she's immersed in makeovers. 12 months of oil and cosmetics, six months each, right? And then you get to verse 13 and 14. She, prep, she prepares to spend one night with the king, one night with Xerxes. Now, Vashti is an irreligious woman, but she's got values, and so she's strong, and so she disgraces the king. But in verse 15... Esther does whatever she can to please. In verse 16, every, she becomes everyone's favorite, and soon after in verse 17, she becomes the favorite of the king. And as a result, she becomes queen. You see that? When you read this text, it's easy to conclude that in the Persian culture, the most important thing about a man, about a man is his wealth and power and his sexual conquests. And the most important thing about a woman is her physical beauty and her sex appeal. Now, we live in a more advanced world than Esther's time, but our values have not advanced all that much, even in the church. Our values are still the same because our hearts are still the same. You see, the world says, unless you have a good pedigree, unless you have beauty, sex appeal, unless you have wealth, you are absolutely worthless. And we have a, a ton of women who are just completely broken in our society today because they don't feel like they're uh, shaping up. And we have a ton of men who are, who are just completely broken today, feeling worthless and down because they don't feel like they meet up. So what does the world say? Well, you need to go through the world's beauty treatments. 
You need to shape your life up. You need to perform. You need to do well. You need to perform for others. Perform for your boss. You need to jump through every hurdle. And if you do successfully, if you're able to get past and step over other people successfully, you will be acceptable. Now, here's a question. I know a lot of you grew up in the church. And I know a lot of you say you're Christians. So please take my question as a pastor who's concerned. Are you trying to join the world's harem? Are you trying to join the world's harem? And so you sold out. You sold out to society. To society's definition of success. What's the basis on which you choose your friends and your jobs and your neighborhoods, the neighborhoods you live in, the homes that you purchase, even your spouses? What's really at the heart of your life goals? Now, a little confession. I have LinkedIn. And I see a lot of that ego shaping and ego building all over LinkedIn. What is at the heart of you shaping? What are you shaping at the, end, at the heart of your life, at the core of your life? Is it a, just a wonderful LinkedIn profile? Or are you working on your heart? Because it takes work and a specific kind of discipline to be able to go against the world's values. Vashti, she looks at the king. She's disgusted and she's irreligious. And Esther, who grew up in the church, Esther, who grew up in the faith, just completely sucked away. Why? Because we assume so much about who we are. We identify so much. We compartmentalize so much church and our faith. And we think, but I studied and I worked hard and I performed well. So far, the hero of the narrative is not Esther. It's Vashti, because it's not until chapter two. It, it, we're, I'm sorry, we're only at chapter two, and we see that Esther has already been swept away by wealth and beauty and power and comfort. And by verse 10, she hides her identity. She doesn't really want people to know who she is. So Esther buys into all of her beauty treatments and her culture's view of a woman's diet and a woman's figure, and she ultimately sleeps with the king. She violates every sacred law, essentially, in the Hebrew culture. And then she marries him. Why? Because of his wealth and his power. She's completely lost herself, completely lost her voice. And she forgets about God's people. She forgets about their suffering. She forgets about her calling as a Hebrew. And she violates their sacred way of life. In essence, her power, her beauty, things that were given to her, made her weak. But what's amazing about the book is that by the end of the book, she's brave. She finds herself again, essentially. By the end of the book, Esther becomes sacrificial. She becomes wise and courageous. She becomes a mediator, a savior. She risks her life and she becomes a redeemer. Now, what does that mean? God never gave up on Esther. Esther, up until this point, is a total failure. I mean, whether you look at liberal commentators or conservative commentators, they all agree on at least this point, that Esther is a complete failure at this point. But the message of the Bible is this. God works through broken contexts, broken situations, broken people to demonstrate sheer grace 
Do people who don't deserve it, never asked for it, often run from it, aren't even seeking about it, seeking it or aware of it? Beauty and wealth and power and our brokenness are the context in which God is working in Esther to humble her through the pressures of life. So don't despair. If you feel extreme pressure and God seems extremely absent, don't despair because God has not forgotten. And he may be, he just may be preparing you to use you through your experience and life and wisdom and gifts and your failures, just like Esther. How do you apply the text? How do you apply this text? Now, remember, Esther is a poor Jewish orphan who hid her identity and sacrificed her values because she desperately wanted a connection with the king. And as a result, she lost herself and abandoned her connection to the real king, the true king, God himself. How do we find ourselves again? What God intended us to be again. You have to behold a greater Esther. Jesus Christ is a true Jew and he was poor. Esther hid her identity and she went from becoming an orphan to royalty to save herself. But Jesus Christ also hid his identity as the true king and went from ultimate royalty to become an orphan. How? On the cross, when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is he saying? I've lost my father. I've been abandoned. I am the ultimate orphan. The ultimate orphan because I lost God. In other words, Jesus Christ lost, lost God. He lost the father. Why? So we could have God. We could have the father. Jesus Christ was rejected by the king so that we could be accepted by the ultimate king. Isaiah 53 says this. He had no beauty, no majesty that attracted us to him, and he was rejected. In other words, Jesus Christ is the most beautiful, kingliest, most wealthy and powerful person to ever walk the earth, and yet he became ugly on the cross, broken and beaten and torn so that you could be made beautiful in him you could have the favor of God. God's people, through Jesus, in Jesus, could become the bride of the king, a queen of the ultimate king. To see that Jesus Christ became ugly and powerless and poor and rejected, orphaned and isolated for you so you could never be alone. God will always be with you. That's what makes Jesus beautiful. And when you behold that hidden beauty of Jesus and experience God's love for you on the cross, this is the key of being healed of our sense of unworthiness and our own personal ugliness whether it's a spiritual guilt and shame or just being, just feeling externally ugly in any way. Earthly kings, they'll say, you need to be beautiful, so I need you to work at it. 
I need you to earn it. I need you to work and you're going to end up like a slave and you will be powerless and you'll be exploited and you'll be weak and you'll be compromised. You will sell out. And there are people in this room, there are people who are already watching, who already have experienced the consequences of selling out. You are jealous. You are driven by pride and anger and hurt, disappointments, anxiety, and depression. And ultimately, you end up isolated. You see that? God feels absent. God feels distant. But if you see God absent from Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, I've been forsaken on the cross so that he could be present for you, then you know, then you know that God worked through the ultimate brokenness in Jesus on the cross. The ultimate blood, the ultimate blood poured out suffering to bring about the ultimate salvation for his people. Then you know that he is committed He has never left you, he has never given up on you, and he is doing his work to build in you the beauty of Christ. What is the beauty of Christ? It's his courage, it's his compassion, it's his wisdom, it's his kindness. How do you apply that? How do you apply that? I have a few practical things. One, stop looking to building your resume, that LinkedIn profile, your looks, your charisma. Stop relying on these things. Stop looking to these things. Stop looking to your skills and your talent to build your inner confidence. It will get shaken because you will age. You will get fat. You see? You can't rest your inner confidence on those things. It doesn't work. It doesn't satisfy. Like Esther, you will sell out to increase your options, potential, and joy, when in fact, it actually decreases your option, potential, and joy. And it's all exhausting, and it's demeaning, and it just drives you towards anxiety and depression. Some of you know because you're already there, or you're heading there really fast. Look, God isn't done with you. God isn't done with you. So you have to remember that the most important life decisions in your life will revolve around your fear or your pride, and it will make you a slave. Only the gospel can set us free to build real inner poise and courage. Two, some of you right now are extremely lonely, empty. I can't blame you. I mean, we're in this period of isolation. How can we not experience loneliness? But sometimes we get angry, and we feel guilty. And it shows, it's visible. You don't think it's visible, but it's visible. And there's still just lots of heaping pressure in your life. I want you to know this. God isn't done with you. God is present right there in your anger. God is is present with you. The reason why we can go to God is because he's present with us. You don't work your way into God, right? He's already present through Jesus. He's present. He hears. You see that? And he's patient. And he's kind. And he could be setting you up. He could be using your experience right now, that brokenness, and weaving in that brokenness a thread of redemption to build you into something great. Look to the cross. There's your love. There's the acceptance. There's the validation that you need. And there's the presence of God that you need. Esther was loved because she performed. But Jesus Christ loves us in spite of, of our ugliness, in spite of our sin, in spite of our inability to perform, to make us beautiful in him. Stop working for people's love and getting frustrated. Quit the beauty treatments. Put on the only beauty treatment you need, 
Be clothed in the righteousness, Christ. Be cleansed from your sins by his blood. And he will make us beautiful and radiant as a bride. Third, that enables us, it frees us to look at our skills and our gifts very differently. Most of your skills, most of your gifts are either because you are a product of being in the right place at the right time, which is really by sheer grace, or you were endowed with it when you were born. They say nowadays that most of your intelligence is something that's given to you. You may shape it, you may develop it over time, but even that time and place, right? You are endowed with your looks. You are endowed with your body. Stop complaining about your face. Stop complaining about your looks and your body, your figure that God gave to you along with a host of many other gifts that you have, skills that you've developed. When the gospel takes hold, you will desire to use these gifts in bold ways for God and his kingdom. It enables you to look at these gifts. Stop using these things as a way to look attractive to other people. Use them for the kingdom, the way God intended for you. Fourth, when you suffer, some people get nastier. Some people get uglier. And it's very visible. You get bitter. You blame other people. You complain. Those are the symptoms. You get very defensive and self-justifying. Those are the symptoms. You develop a spiritual myopia so that even if people are trying to speak into you, there's a blindness there that everybody else sees but you. But a Christian says this, yes, I've been suffering a lot, but that suffering has actually purified me to become more like Christ. We don't look for suffering. Suffering is going to find you. And it's hard. But could God subvert that suffering in a way that it's still working towards the enhancement of your own spiritual beauty and joy? Look at Esther. He didn't have to suffer. She could have betrayed her calling, but instead she betrayed her beauty. She betrayed her comforts. And she chose to suffer. And that's what made her truly beautiful. She developed a humility and a compassion and a courage and a voice. Esther abandoned the social expectations that extended since the most ancient of times, thousands of years, and thus became a prototypical feminist. Thousands of years later, we are still studying Esther. Lastly, Esther needed Mordecai. You're going to see this. Esther needed Mordecai, somebody who's praying for her daily. Somebody who's reminding her of who she is, how to, how to be, how to navigate this very strange world we live in. Esther needed a Mordecai to navigate her, to help her to navigate life, reminding her of her calling and her identity. Mordecai had a warrant to call her out. Who have you given a warrant to for your arrest when you forget your identity, when you forget your calling? Plug into the life of the church, community, deep community. If you're doing it outside the church, right, even if the church would endorse it, if you're doing it outside the church in many ways, right, you know, maybe subverting the church, neglecting the church, pushing the church away, but hey, I'm still finding community because if you're doing that, you're not plugging into the life of the church. I'm asking you to not plug into the outskirts of the church, but the backbone of the church. 
I'm asking you to not plug in to the extremities of the church, but to the brain and the heart and the soul of the church. And when you do that, when you plug into the life of the church, Jesus Christ says, I am the vine and you, he's talking about you plural, you, the church, are the branches. The life flows. You experience new life. And so plug into the Mordecai's of your life. Plug into the life of the church. It may begin with community groups, but just because you attend community group or you attend worship does not mean that you're plugging into the life of the church. Plug deeply and richly into a community of people, not just people you like, but a community of people who know you and can call you and see you and have a warrant for your arrest when you forget your identity and when you forget your calling. This is the beginning of our Advent series, and I hope that beyond just these practical things, we will be able to see and celebrate the beauty of Christ, the beauty and the richness of being in Christ as we head towards the Christmas season. So we're not just lost in the externals. We're not just lost in gift giving and, and gift uh, posting and, and wish list posting and, 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 and purchasing that we can plug into what this, is, what this means. We have the ultimate richness and treasure in Jesus that we can look to and behold as the greater Esther who heals us of our pursuit of, of wealth and power and significance on our own. Let's pray together.